Welcome into another edition of the Duck Territory Podcast, Bowl Edition. Bowl Edition, but not not Bowl Bowl. Not Bowl Bowl. We should be clarified. We should We're be not clear. speaking on just Oregon's freshman <laughs> center for the next thirty minutes, which maybe we should do. At some point. That would be pretty cool. Uh, Oregon is in a bowl game, and if you detached—no offense—the name of this bowl game, you're probably pretty jacked up. It's Oregon versus Michigan State on a New Year's Eve game. And uh, the it playing in the Red Box Bowl in Levi's Stadium, I think this was probably the the second most likely landing spot for Oregon going into Bowl Selection Sunday, which was yesterday, the day we're, we're recording this on Monday. Um, many people thought that Oregon was going to the Holiday Bowl. Oregon had been told by Holiday Bowl officials that you know a couple weeks ago that if they were available, they were going to. Take the Ducks. And we talked about this before the podcast, talked about it on the site, that we were going to see the brand power of Oregon uh, because Washington State not getting into a New Year's Six Bowl. Which is terrible Which is terrible for the conference. Puts Utah up against Oregon. A 9-4 and Pac-12 South Division winner. A team who beat Oregon up against the brand power of Oregon, who's 8-4. and four. Winners of their last two games, uh, and more healthy than Utah, and the Holiday Bowl selected Utah instead. And you know, I think you kind of understand it. You know, they played the Pac-12 championship game. Um, beat Oregon. They, they beat Oregon, and they too also have a, a good following of a fan base that would head south uh, for that game. Uh, but that opens the door for the Red Box Bowl, and ideally. Or not ideally, but in retrospect, there'll probably be more Duck fans at this game than the Holiday Bowl because it's easier to get to for Oregon's localized fan base in Eugene, Springfield, Portland, and with and across they, the state of Oregon. They've got a decent fan base. We're down at the yeah, and then Cal. They've got a decent fan base in the Bay Area. The Bay Area is their second largest alumni group outside of the state of Oregon. So. Though there will be a huge contingent of Duck fans, I would expect. Um, now the, the the thing is, is Levi Stadium is a big stadium, and you know you, you could say twenty five thousand Duck fans show up for the game, and the same the, the thing could still look pretty, relatively empty or or half full because it's a big stadium. And I don't know how well Michigan State's fan base is going to travel for a team that went seven and five, five and four in conference play. Very kind of similar to what yeah. Oregon was this season. Um, Mark D'Antonio is obviously known as a juggernaut defensive coach. You know, I think no matter what record they have, you know you're going to face a team defensively that's going to be pretty good. And this year's team is all of that and more. Really quickly, I want to run through. People are probably like, what is the Red Box Bowl? Because this is the first year it's been called the Red Box Bowl. Yes. The, the, the bowl has held six different names since 2002. From 2014. They have an identity crisis. They really do. Oh, and I, well, it's pretty clear if you read through this that it's just whoever pays them money is going to. <laughs> and that's just the reality of it because it's sponsored by different. It's, the sponsorship has changed, which is why the name has changed. 2014 to 17 was the Foster Farms Bowl. 2013 was the Fight Hunger Bowl. 2010 to 2012 was the Craft Fight Hunger Bowl. 2014, or 2004-2009 was the Emerald Bowl, and 2002-2003 was the Diamond Walnut San Francisco Bowl. So it has it has had a lot of different names. Oregon, of course, uh, has not played with it as the Red Box Bowl. Um, 
But they yeah, uh, first time for Oregon. This is the first time at this particular bowl game. The Pac-12 has obviously sent a ton of teams to this, but this is the first time Oregon has played. And most recently, um, Purdue beat Arizona last year. Utah beat Indiana the year before that, and Nebraska beat UCLA back in 2015. So the Pac-12 has actually been struggling a little bit in this bowl of late. Um, but I do think it's an interesting matchup, which is what we were trying to get to there with that nicely set up segue from Matt, which I intercepted and uh, selfishly wanted to run down some, <laughs> some information just for fans listening at home. Because I, I had to run through this uh, when Oregon was being mentioned with it because I was going, what is the Red Box Bowl? And that might be someplace they go. I, I know it's in the Bay Area, but what's the what's the origin of this bowl? And here it is. It's, it's, it's been a bunch of different iterations of it. But yeah, defensively, Michigan State is as good as ever. I mean, it's, it's it, you look at the numbers here, they're the best run defense in the country. Teams are really haven't had any success most of the year. 81 yards per game rushing against Michigan State. That's obviously best in the conference um, as well as in the country. Um, they are seconds in the Big Ten in rushing or in total yards per game. Michigan is number one nationally in that category, so there's another good defense there. And then they're third in points allowed with um, – 18.0 points per game. So this is a tremendous defense that Michigan State um, comes to or, uh, against Oregon with. Um, you look at kind of their stars. They've got, I think, four different players with more than 70 tackles. For comparison, Oregon has just one, and that's Troy Dye. Right. Um, they have the nation's sixth best player in tackles for loss. So they've got some guys that get behind the line of scrimmage and make plays. So it's a very challenging defense to face. And I, I think if you're Oregon, you probably come in. And, and I'll be curious to see... How long does Oregon continue to try to establish the run game, or how much of a, how much um, of what they're trying to do offensively will be focused on that? Because this could be a game where you just can't run the football and you're forced to pass it, and that might be something that uh, that they have to kind of cut bait with sooner than later. I, I mean, again, I don't know. Maybe they'll find a lot of success running, but it is one of those games you wonder when and will Marcus Arroyo be willing to kind of go cut our losses? We're not able to run the ball on this team. Let's start throwing it more. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this defense because just like Oregon is dealing with uh, injuries and uh, uncertainty. I mean, I don't know if you can really say for Oregon uncertainty because Crystal Ball did come out and say that Herbert's going to play in this game. Right. Um, and he is healthy. Uh, we all should say that, that Justin Herbert had a slight bone bruise on his shoulder uh, against Oregon State via Crystal Ball and that he will be playing and that he will be healthy and Oregon's getting other guys back. Um, Should we run through just what Cristobal said in terms of guys coming back? Sure, let's let's say that just for a second here because how that relates to Michigan State is Josiah, um, what's his name? uh, Josiah Scott. He is a sophomore cornerback for, for the Spartans. He has suffered a major injury and he's just now getting back into form. He was a freshman All-American by ESPN last season. Uh, two-year, basically was a, you know, expected to be a two-year starter. Um, all 13 Big Ten, all mentioned Big Ten by the coaches, uh, was an All Big Ten freshman. Um, won the MSU Outstanding Underclassman Back Award on defense last year. He doesn't know if he's going to play in this game or not because he's at that threshold where if he plays, it's his fifth game. And you won't be able to redshirt. And a game that really doesn't mean anything in terms of the, the overall landscape of the 2018 season for Michigan State. He is their best cornerback. And so does Michigan State decide to redshirt him yeah. and preserve him for, you know, basically get him for a whole other year 
or is that a whole year worth beating Oregon and shutting down Dylan Mitchell? That's going to be a question that Michigan State's going to have to figure out. Um, they've also got a couple other injuries at quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewerke, uh, he, Brian Lewerke, he's missed multiple games, and D'Antonio doesn't know if he's going to be healthy to play or not. They've also got uh, an offensive lineman, David Beadle, and another cornerback, Josh Butler, who are hurt currently and are upperclassmen. That could end up saying, you know what, I'm going pro this season after this year. I'm not going to play in this bowl game because I want to preserve my health ahead of the combine and, and, and such. And so Michigan State's got a lot of guys that are key, key names that are either coming back from injury or still currently hurt, trying to get healthy. Or trying to figure out, do I even play in this game? So Michigan State's going to, I think, they could be a tough scout because you don't know who's playing and you don't right. know who's replacing who uh, on, on both sides of the football. You know, and, and we, should, we should mention quickly, yeah, you mentioned Lewerke, the quarterback, um, the injury issues. The backup, Rocky Lombardi, is a freshman. Not to be overly critical, the stats are really pretty bad. Um, he started the last, I think two of the last, well, he started three games this season. There was kind of some in-between stuff here, but his completion percentage was below 50% in three out of four starts. Right. He has a season completion percentage of 44%, which is terrible. Um, against Ohio State, they scored six points. Against Nebraska, they scored six points. Against Rutgers, they scored 14 points. And for context, Rutgers is like Oregon State level of yes. of badness in the Big Ten. Um, so he's he was just atrocious throwing the football. And the offense was like decent – and I'll say decent before that. Lewerke wasn't great. Eight touchdown passes, ten interceptions. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And it's worth mentioning Lewerke, 54% completion percentage himself, so not a great passer there. But it, it'll be interesting to see what happens at quarterback because, to me, if, if Lombardi, based upon the stats he has there, that's sort of almost Braxton Burmeister yeah. caliber of numbers. And if that's the quarterback they're facing, I think Oregon has a much better chance. If Lewerke plays, he might not beat you, but... At least he's going to be able to get the offense moving. Let's really just quickly go down um, Oregon's injury report because Cristobal did offer a lot of information uh, on Sunday. And we've got a story here. Alec um, Aaron wrote it for us, just kind of breaking down all the stuff he said. The Herbert thing, obviously, um, you know, the biggest news of the day. The injury is in-game, Cristobal said. We held him out because he could not continue. It's essentially a really deep bruise, which is yeah. which kind of lines up with John Canzano's report Correct. from a couple weeks or from earlier in the week. Um, Penny Sue will be back. That's that huge. That is a massive, massive Oregon's piece of off, information. Oregon's offense has never looked the same no. since he left the field against Washington with that injury. Yeah, I was trying to explain it to a Washington fan because he was. We were talking about kind of the reflection of the way the season had played out, and I said I think the injury to Sewell is being kind of almost overlooked because it's an offensive lineman. It's not a skilled player. It's not a player who scores the touchdowns, but he was a huge part there. And I agree. You know, you look at the production. They struggled offensively against Washington State, especially earlier in that game. They struggled against Arizona. They weren't very good against UCLA. They were bad against Utah until the second and third quarter of that game. And even against Arizona State, it wasn't pretty. It didn't get great against until Oregon State. And quite frankly, we think and everybody kind of thinks Oregon State's defense is terrible. So um, his return is huge. Um, Tony Brooks-James, uh, he had a knee strain but no tear, according to Crystal Ball. He's wearing a brace for 10 days now. Um, they expect him to recover enough to start practicing. They're not sure about the bowl game itself. Jalen Jelks should be good to go, which is also good it's news. It's big news for Oregon. There was some concern that that might keep him out for the rest of the season. Stephen Jones, also good to go. Kalana Apelu, this is another one that is, is pretty significant. 
Uh, Crystal said Lana's coming along well. We expect Lana to have an opportunity by the time we get to the bull site to be practicing and to be a full go. So that sounds like there's some optimism there. Kano Dillon is the one they don't really know about. Um, he's dealing with an abdominal strain, but Austin Folly is good to go. Justin Collins is good to go. Um, Isaac Slade, also good to go. Um, so Oregon's basically, Oregon's basically healthy. healthy. I'm not looking through this here. It also says Cyrus Habibi, the key, and Hockey Woods are also good to go. So, I mean, basically, if you look at the, this injury report, the only guys that are kind of uncertain are, on are, are Tony Brooks James and, and Kalana Apelu, um, two seniors. And, of course, you'd love to see and those Kano guys. And Kano Dillon. And Kano Dillon, sorry. Three seniors. You'd love to see those guys finish their career. It would be rough to be injured for your last game. But for the most part, Oregon is very healthy, and I think that bodes well going into this game. Of course, you've got a couple weeks of bull practice to get through, too, and, and stuff can happen there. But um, I think an encouraging sign, and, again, I think the return of Penny Sewell will be a huge, huge yeah. storyline. Now, I had him as the MVP of the offense, not because yeah. of the production over a 12-game period, but more so of what Oregon's offense looked like with him. I mean, I, I have visions of them running all over a Cal defense that was one of the best in the conference. Yeah. They dominated a Stanford team uh, for three-and-a-half quarters uh, with Penn Um And then against Washington, you know, they went toe-to-toe with the league's best defense. And, you know, they ended up winning that game without him because he was hurt. But they scored 30 points on a team, a defense that, what, Utah scored three points yes. against them in the Pac-12 championship game? So, I, I mean, I think Penn Sewell is the most valuable guy on this team simply just because of look at what Oregon did right. with and look what they did without for full, from a full game perspective. And this team looks, you know, was drastically different. They couldn't, you know, they had no really identity uh, without him. And with him, it was clear, hey, we're going to run the football. And it may not be, you know, six, seven, eight yard chunks, but they were getting three, four yards and getting first downs on a consistent basis. So getting a Sewell back for... A bowl game is tremendous in terms of his own personal development because he's going to have 15 practices before that bowl game, right. which is invaluable. And then on top of that, uh, you can go into a bowl game now with one of your best players. I mean, I, I think you could argue that he didn't make the pro football focus uh, all first team or second team. Um, we haven't seen the conference selections, which should come out relatively soon. Um, Probably after this podcast. Uh, yeah, after this podcast is released. Um, but I would, you know, I would imagine if he'd stayed healthy, he would be a first team or a second team caliber offensive lineman in the pack. And, here, and here's just this, the base stats here, you know, with pre Sewell injury and post. So in, in three conference games with Sewell, 178 yards rushing and three touchdowns against Stanford, 260 yards rushing and two touchdowns against Cal. And that's, like we said, very impressive. Cal's defense was one of the best nationally, um, and certainly the, one of the best in the conference this year. 177 yards and two touchdowns against Washington. Of course, he didn't play in that entire game. And then after that, at Washington State, 58 yards rushing, one touchdown. At Arizona, 84 yards, zero touchdowns. UCLA, which doesn't have a very good run defense, 200 yards, three touchdowns. At Utah, 117 yards, zero touchdowns. And then against Arizona State, they, they kind of sort of figured things out. Um, those last three of those last four games, I think, against UCLA, Arizona State, and Oregon State, and they had pretty good numbers. Arizona State, 187 yards, two touchdowns, and I don't have the stats here for Oregon State, but it was 390 yards and five touchdowns or four touchdowns. So um, certainly they finished strong, but I, you do see, I think, an indication there of against Washington and Cal, who have, I would say, probably two of the top three defenses along with Utah. Really big running games with Sewell in the lineup. Without him, they struggled against Washington State, Arizona, and Utah running the football. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much of a difference does that make against Michigan State's defense, which, as we established earlier, is is really, really good. And one thing that we should also note on is that 
with Oregon playing on the 31st, that gives them a full three weeks to recruit. And yes. we've that, if, if you're if you're familiar with Oregon football recruiting, last week or last year was I wouldn't call it a disaster, but it was a perfect storm for things to not go correctly in all phases because they had to go out and find a new head coach because Willie Taggart left shortly after the Civil War game. Uh, they quickly named Mario Cristobal the interim head coach, and at the same time, they had to do damage control from a PR perspective of recruiting and try and keep guys that were committed and some guys that were on the fence uh, tied into the Ducks. They had to prepare for a bowl game, and then at the same time, they had to, A, hire a head coach and then get a guy in and try and host guys for official visits. And, oh, by the way, you lose one of your three weekends before the first signing period to host guys. Um, and so we, we obviously saw, you know, they ended up choosing Cristobal as the permanent head coach. Um, Oregon went to Boise State, and they, you know, they flew out that day to try and, and get, you know, some last-minute in-home visits and, and whatnot. But, you know, the week leading up to the Vegas Bowl, you know, Oregon coaches went out of town in the, in the evenings to, to make trips to California and Arizona and Utah and uh, around the West Coast to, to make in-home visits. And that, I'm sure, played a factor in, you know, the, the product of what Oregon put on the field on Saturday against Boise State. And so that whole hoopla doesn't have to be dealt with. You know, Oregon doesn't have to practice. They're not holding any kind of practice uh, this week. Uh, they're not having any practices next week until Friday, yeah. uh, when basically Oregon staff gets back into town from from recruiting, and they begin their official visit weekend periods. So it, it, it presents an opportunity now for Oregon staff to, hey, we have three weeks that we need to just zero in on recruiting. Our players need to zero in on school and getting healthy because this week is finals week, right. uh, and and we can worry about the bowl game. In two weeks, because we've got plenty of time still to prepare for that game. And, you know, that last year, not having that, like we said, you know, and of course the Blake Taggart thing is a factor, which you have to sure. consider as one, probably a really significant one. But not having that big weekend, uh, I think, cost them commitments. Yep. And certainly cost them guys like Talanova Funga, who was planning, I think, was talking at least to coming. Chase Cota was another. A lot of these top targets they were looking at, were, which were also supposed to take part in this, um, commitment weekend did not end up making it through, and I think that really hurt their class. So certainly, having the opportunity to to fully maximize your recruiting efforts this time of year is critical. Uh, I thought it was interesting yesterday. Cristobal was wearing a suit. He said, he even joked and said, uh, "I'm not wearing this for yeah. you in the media. I'm wearing this because I have an in-home visit with a recruit later on this afternoon." Um, and so he was all dressed up for that. Recruiting remains a huge thing for the staff, and we probably shouldn't talk too much about it. Kevin, I did an emergency podcast inside earlier, but Oregon has had some struggles recruiting sure. two D commitments um, in the last week, certainly since the last time we spoke. Um, dropped them from fourth nationally to seventh. Um, They're still first in the Pac-12. Still first in the Pac-12 by a decent amount, too. Yeah. They've got a little bit of room to work around, but certainly something to keep an eye on with, with recruiting, uh, you know, coming to a close, sort of, um, in, a, in about two weeks here. Obviously, there'll be a number of top prospects nationally that, that remain unsigned and, and their recruitments will continue. But I would expect the vast majority of guys that are committed to any school right now will sign with that school um, in the next two weeks or, or in, on December 19th in about two weeks. So, um, yeah, and I guess do we want to talk at all about the other bowls, the Pac-12, or, or just talk about the Pac-12 at large because it was well, <laughs> it I think, rough. <laughs> I think if you look at things 
from let's before we look at across the conference, yeah. let's look at Oregon real quick, and we'll we'll go more in depth on this bowl game as it gets closer. Uh, we will be at the bowl game, so if you are going, uh, you know, reach out to Eric or I and figure out you know where you are and where where you're staying and where your seats are. Maybe we can you know put something together or whatnot. But one of us will be there for sure. Uh, I'm for sure going to be there. We're still seeing if Eric can get there or not. Um, Oregon finished the regular season with one vote in the AP top 25. One one point. So they got a vote. My point though, of bringing this up is, is that. If you're not going to make the college football playoff, or if you're not going to make the New Year's Six Bowl game, there's three or four positives that you can have in playing in, in bowl games. One, you get 15 practices. That's the most important aspect of this thing, is that you get two weeks more of practice, and you get a game of, of action to, to work on. And then the second most important thing is, is that you hope you're playing against a Power 5 team, a respectable opponent. Because there's nothing worse than uh, a Power 5 team playing a group of 5 team like Oregon did last year and yeah. losing. Because yeah. that's almost like two losses in one. Because you're you're a perceived bigger program with more advantages, more facilities, more resources. And, and to lose to a, a, a group of 5 school, and, and there are a great group of 5 schools, Boise State, Fresno State, UCF, they didn't even mention that. They haven't lost in two years. It's crazy. Um you know, but at the same time, you're a bigger boy. You should win. Uh, and then the last one is the momentum that you get from a victory. Of you end the season on a high note, and that kind of kind of sets the tone and the trajectory for your season the following year. Especially if you beat a Power Five team. So Oregon's got an opportunity to get 15 more practices. They play a, a respectable opponent in Michigan State that people are going to look at and say, "Hey, they beat Michigan State. That's pretty impressive." And on top of that, they can get to nine wins, and they could possibly, you know, sneak into the top 25 or just outside of it to end the regular season. And if things shake out the way that they probably are going to shake out, Oregon's going to bring back a majority of this team, which sets them up for a, a big preseason ranking. And that was that was going to be my question: is let's say let's let's put together a best case scenario. Let's say Oregon wins the bowl game; is very impressive doing so. Justin Herbert. Returns, Bill Mitchell returns, all the juniors. Right. And, and Cristobal did say that they used their allotment of, I think, six maximum um, evaluations or something. I forget the specifics of it, but and, and that the, the guys you would expect were the guys that that put in their requests for NFL evaluation. They're probably saying that kind of wrong, but right. at the same time, and, and so those guys have put those out there. So there's Steelers being um, put out. But let's say everybody comes back. Oregon wins the bowl game. They're nine wins. Next year they have all of this firepower coming back. How? What, what do you think, Matt? The ceiling would be in terms of how high they could open the season in terms of an AP ranking. Do you think they could be as high as top 15? Does that seem like a stretch? Um, or, or does it feel like this is a team that will be kind of close to where I think they were 23rd maybe in the first poll this year. Does it feel like they can get to that top 15 area, or does it feel like that's sort of a far-fetched thought? That's a tough one because I think a lot's going to be – decided upon what happens at UW. They lose Browning. They lose Gaskins. Um, they lose Caleb McGarry and Drew Sample, you know, a couple guys on the offensive line. Trey Adams said he's coming back for his senior year. But, you know, they lose Greg Gaines and Jalen Johnson, uh, JoJo McIntosh. But could they lose a couple guys in the secondary? You know, I, I, I have to think 
Washington, if if the guys that have the opportunity to go pro come back for UW, even though they're going to lose Browning and Gaskin, I think they'll be the the, the preseason number one team in the Pac-12. Um, maybe Stanford, but I think Oregon is in that discussion. I think they're going to be a team that will receive first place votes, and I think they probably should, from a national perspective. Perfect scenario, I think they're a top 15 team to start the year. Probably 15, 14, 13-ish. I'm not going to put them in the top 10. I'm not going to put them just outside the top 10 either. Um, just because they they had, they had some really bad warts this season. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you can say just because they're a year older, they're automatically going to you know figure those things out and they'll be – those won't show up next year. They kind of have to prove it on the field. But I think the talent is there that they should warrant a top 15 discussion. If you're in the top 15 in preseason, you're in the playoff picture. You you win all your games, you're in. You win 11 out of the 12 and get to the conference championship game and win, you're probably going to be a top six team in the, in the, conf- in the country. Well, and if they go out and take care of business against Auburn early on, oh, one hundred percent. Then they move into the top ten, and then the and we're looking way in the future here, and, and fast forwarding through some really important stuff. Sure, like who's still on the team? Whether they actually even contend with Auburn, but if they did hypothetically beat Auburn, they would certainly move into the college football discussion. They'd probably be, I don't know, at seventh or eighth rank, depending upon where Auburn was when when the season started, and where Oregon was. So. Um, certainly a lot, I think, to be optimistic. If this, if this bowl season does go as planned, and again, there were a lot of things working against them last year, this year certainly feels like you have your allotment of practices to, you know, from a recruiting perspective. You have most of your all hands, it sounds like, will be on deck. I think another thing we should mention is that Cristobal uh, did say that if anyone, he does not aware of anybody who won't be playing in the bowl game um, because of NFL aspirations, but that that's a possibility. Obviously, last year, Freeman situation. But if a player does say, hey, I don't want to play in the game, they won't be able to travel with the team right. to the game, which makes sense. I, I like, think that's pretty basic. Yeah, right? we should talk about that, too. I think that's the right call. And, hey, you want to take yourself out and you don't want to play, that's fine. We support you. We'll help you in every way you can. we can in the areas that you need help with. But you don't get the benefits of – the bowl game. If you're not going to participate in yeah. the bowl game, I think that's the right the right decision. I mean, both both sides, you know, have things on the line here. And if if you're not willing to put, you know, if you're not willing to go out there and compete like your other teammates, you shouldn't get the luxuries of of a bowl game that they get. Absolutely. So yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I it, Crystal seemed pretty confident there wasn't going to be another Royce Freeman situation, and frankly. You look at the roster and it'd be hard to find someone. Herbert would be the only one. Be the only one, right? Maybe, maybe if Dale Mitchell is deciding to go, which we haven't heard any indication, and he's concerned about health or something like that. Although he's someone who hasn't really dealt with much from a health perspective. I know he had a concussion earlier in the year, but yeah, I, I don't think we expect that to take place, but it could. I do want to talk about the Pac-12 and kind of sure. the bull thing. I, I thought the fact that Washington State loses two games all season and doesn't make it in the top 12 of the college football rankings, therefore not in the New York Six, I think that's a, you know, a, a probably kind of a slap in the face to the Pac-12 and B, really concerning if you're the conference that, that a team can, you know, go out and win 10 regular season games, look like one of the top 10 teams in the country for the majority part of the season, lose to its rival in a snowstorm and then doesn't get a play you know, the fact that the conference has one representative in the New York six games is 
bad. He's terrible. Yeah, and it's really concerning. And it's not even the team, the league's best team. It's, it's not really. Yeah, it's not. And, I mean, and, Washington beat Washington State. So yeah, so they deserve that, and they won the conference championship. Yada yada yada. But I mean, I, I think you be folks out west would say Washington State was the best team in the conference yeah. for the majority of the conference season. And the fact to me that the, just straight up, that's not. This is not happening ever in the SEC. First off, unless something crazy happens in the South and the players go on strike and they decide that they have to play walk-ons or something <laughs> like that. There's, that's never happening, and I don't think it's happening in the Big Ten or the Big 12 or the ACC. What's going on in the Pac-12 right now is is very concerning, and if you're a fan of one of the schools in the conference, or in, obviously if you're listening to you're an Oregon fan, I think you have to be concerned about the presidents that's being set right now because they're basically saying... We're okay with being we're, we're the okay. fifth power five. Yeah, conference. we're okay that we're just neglect. We're okay neglecting the Pac-12 if they're not very. If we don't think they're very good, and obviously don't think they're very good. And of course, it's a two-way street. The Pac-12 needs to be better. Um, I don't think it was an impressive showing this year. I think that, honestly, I think <laughs> that might have hurt just from a. Uh, I doubt, doubt this impacted what Washington State went was the fact that the Utah Washington conference championship game was super boring. Yeah. At one point, the commentators were like mocking it, like. Well, Utah hit a long field goal. I was looking for some excitement. There was no offensive touchdown in that game. Um, and that's supposed to be the showcase of this conference, certainly at a time of year where you kind of go, boy, this league is not very in good shape. And if you're an Oregon fan, that doesn't look good for the trajectory. And I, and I think you can you can tie the fact that Washington State didn't make it into the New Year's Six back to the conference yeah, because Woody Dixon, the, oh, count, yeah. the general counsel, chimed in on an instant replay review and overturned a targeting call that was clear as day that was setting up US setting up Washington State for a game winning drive over the Trojans. I think it would have put them inside the twenty with like a couple minutes to go in the game. Uh they ended up losing the football game because of the call. And that gives the Cougars one more conference loss, which if that if that interference had never happened from Woody Dixon it's safe to say Washington never would have even made the college football playoff because the Apple Cup, even though the Huskies beat the Cougars, the Apple Cup would have been rendered useless in terms of the the conference race for the Pac-12 North Division Championship. Uh, The Huskies would have, uh, the Cougars, excuse me, would have had it wrapped up going into the final week. And then we would have been talking about Washington State as a dark horse in the college, like a real dark horse in the playoff. They would have been unbeaten going into that game. You know, and of course they would have lost more than likely anyway, and it would have been different, but yeah, that, that, you know, you're, <laughs> I think the intent was probably to try to benefit the conference. And it hurt them. Because USC were thinking, oh, they're going to be the team that's going to represent the conference. It ended up biting them in the butt about as poorly as you could. And really, you know, and, and John Canzano, I know Oregon fans aren't always the biggest of fans, but he's done a really good job yes. um, this last week writing a, a four-part series. I read the first three. I didn't, I'm not sure if the fourth came out or if I missed it. Um, yes, yeah, so about- the fourth came out and it was about, uh, Oh, there's so much to unpack from all four of them, but it, it was basically more of incompetence from the conference um, and spending and the lack of support for the for the conference for the for the, for the, the league. And, it, and again, we don't want to recommend people go out and, and read other publications' work, but I do. I think that's. I, 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 think, think, I, it's, I think it's worth it if you're if you're a fan of the comp, of Oregon or a team in the conference and you're kind of fed up going, what's going on here? You should take a, take the time. There, there's somewhat long articles, but they're Really, they're very compelling, and they do a good job of kind of establishing really the situation Oregon and the Pac-12 is in right now, where there's kind of almost, I mean, it's almost like the, there's the four power conferences, and then there's the Pac-12, and and a lot of that is because of leadership in the conference, and, and other, you know, there's a lot of issues in play, but 
certainly uh, worth your time to look into because the conference, in my eyes, has never been in worse shape. Um, the conference has never been in a situation where it almost feels infeasible that they have a chance of winning a national championship. I just don't see when or how that's going to happen in the next handful of years, not to be super negative on it, but it's like the conference has a hard time getting a team even recognized and even in the field, and then when they get in there, who's to say they're going to be competitive because the conference hasn't competed highly um, in these non-conference games anyway. So, And this is why bowl game season is so important to finish yes. strong because last year, I think, what, the conference finished the worst all-time of 1-7 in, in bowl games played? 1-8. 1-8. Really bad, yeah. And that set the tone for a lot of those teams' preseason rankings. I mean, Oregon got a top 25 ranking that I probably didn't think was really all that justified because they hadn't shown much. Right. They're 7-6. and six. Um, but, you know, if a couple of these Pac-12 teams can get some victories, you know, like a, like a Utah, if they can beat a Northwestern who's a ranked opponent, the Utes will finish 10-4 and four on the year, and they bring back a lot of their guys, uh, and they'll be in the top 25 next season. If Stanford wins, they, they'll finish the year 9-4, and four, probably just inside the top 25 or just outside of it, and I think you can make a case, even though without Bryce Love, that hey, they're a, they're a fringe top 25 team. Same thing for Oregon. Washington State, if they can beat another top 25 team in Iowa State and finish the year 11-2, and two, I don't know how you can't vote them in to the top 25 next season, even with Gardner Minshew graduating and right. moving on, because look what they've done the last three years. It doesn't matter who's playing for them. They put up yards. They put up numbers. They have a good defense. They win games. California... They're not a top 25 They're team, be an interesting team, but they could be an interesting team at 8 and 5. Same thing with ASU, 8 and 5 beating a top 21 team uh in Fresno State who's 11 and 2. So there's opportunities for this conference to shape the narrative next season going into the, the 2019 year by having a strong bowl season and winning your games. At minimum, they need to win more than 50%. I think there are, what, seven teams that are in bowls this year. Yes. They need to win at least four of those. Obviously, I think the headliners, like... If Washington can pull off the upset, that would, that would be huge. I think Stanford needs to beat Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh's not very good. Washington State needs to win. Washington needs to beat Iowa State. Uh, Utah probably needs... I mean, honestly, I think the conference needs to win all of these oh. games. And, and to me, you look at this, I think it's fairly favorable. I think Arizona State, Fresno State, that's going to be tough. I think Cal should beat TCU. I think Washington State should beat Iowa State. I think Oregon should beat Michigan State. I think Stanford should beat Pitt. I think Utah should beat Northwestern, although I'm concerned with that Utah offense. We kind of saw... I, I've been concerned for a couple weeks about Jason Shelley and Armand Shine running that offense because... That's a huge step back in terms of experience. We finally saw it caught up against a very good Washington defense. But I think Utah's capable of beating Northwestern. I think Washington beating Ohio State is asking a lot, but you never know. Um, but certainly, if they can go 4-3 and three or even 5-2 and two this bowl season, that's going to, com- again, completely agree. Reshape the narrative going into next year. Maybe you do end up with five or six teams. Preseason top range, 25. Which, which is not what happened certainly this year. Um and certainly that would be because it would be a disaster if they win one one or two games this yes. year again. Because then you're like, well, this conference really can't compete. And now it's not more than just an isolated event; it's becoming a trend. We'll have lots more to get to in terms of the Pac-12 bowl season. We'll also get into um, Oregon, Michigan State more in depth. I think next week's podcast is going to be pretty heavy recruiting. Right. Because signing day is on the 19th, which is just 16 days away from the date that we're recording this one. Uh, they've got two more recruiting weekends. 
this coming weekend and then the following weekend as well. So uh, recruiting is kicking into high gear if it hasn't already. It, it basically has. Uh, but it's it's the final stretch run of the first leg of the race for from a recruiting perspective. Signing days on the 19th. Ducks have 20 verbal commitments. Top seven class in the country. Uh, first class in the Pac-12. So next week we'll do a we'll do a heavy dose of recruiting, kind of get you up to speed on on what the Ducks have, where they need to improve upon, where they're going. Uh, but for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening to the Duck Territory podcast, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Uh, find us on iTunes. And share, like, and re- and uh, give us a review as well. Thanks, guys. Adios.